0: I like to read, and I like to read uh, in my stream and outside of my stream. I want to know what people in my field, you know, as pastors and theologians are thinking. I also want to know what people outside my stream, like atheists, secularists, are thinking. I want to be a person that knows my culture. There's this passage in the Old Testament where it talks about David's mighty men, and it talks about these sons of Issachar that knew the times and knew what they should do about it. So I I I like to read. I'm not an intellectual person. I like those arguments, but I'm not like super, super deep. Uh, and so every once in a while, I dig into a book that's like way beyond me, and I'm in the deep end of the pool. And so a book that I noticed referenced a number of times in different podcasts and other books by people I respect uh, kept coming back to this guy named Charles Taylor, who's a philosopher, Canadian philosopher, secularist. He, he would claim to be some kind of Christian, but, but not, and yet he's an incredible incredibly deep thinker and this book, A Secular Age, is something that Christians are going back and back to and they're they're saying, what about this? What about that? So so anyway, so pray for me as I go through this Canadian philosopher's deep thinking Uh, because I want to know where people are at. If we are going to impact our community for Christ, we need to know what's going on in the world around us. And um, that means getting out there and listening. Uh, Paul went to Athens and he hung out in the conversations of the philosophers. that That's what we're thinking about. And that's what I think about when I think about uh, books like this. It's interesting because as uh, I would call him an atheist, as someone who denies the biblical God, denies the biblical worldview, um, in this book, he's not so much arguing for that. He's just arguing for the continued pattern of thought that the idea of God is dead. You know, Nietzsche, you know, with the God is dead movement, not that God died. Okay, but that we just don't need it. The idea of God is dead. God is no longer relevant to our culture and our age. Well, to continue to build on that, What um, Taylor is writing about is about this idea that we no longer live in a world of rational thought. We live in a world, as he said, our modern age where all beliefs are contested and contestable. The idea that every belief, whatever the belief is, it's a controversial belief. And every belief can be argued. There's no more definitive answer. We used to live in an age, an age where, whether it was based on Western Christianity, Judeo-Christian ethics or not, where you could all end up on the same page, but we no longer have that in our culture. We haven't had it for years. We live in a world, we live in an age where we just endlessly We say we debate, we just argue with no resolve and nobody coming to any kind of agreement. Taylor argues that in our secular age, it can best be described as the experience of being blown to and fro by the pressures of different beliefs. He says we're constantly rubbing up against philosophies, stories, explanations that challenge our understanding of the world while we stand strongly against anyone who doesn't believe what we believe. And as a result... We live in a world of outrage. We live in a world of anger. And so living in a secular age, he argues, isn't about belief or unbelief. It's the fact that you can't have any belief because you can't stand on any belief. There is no position you could stand on without feeling the strong attacks of people who oppose you. And so all you do is embed yourself deeper in your belief, whether or not it's ever tested. Now, this has never been so much more evident than in the last year and a half, right? I mean, think about this. The idea that every idea, every understanding is contested, controversial, and, you know, the idea of contestable, we're just going to argue forever, actually has shown up in tidal wave force over the last year, year and a half, because of what we've experienced beginning with COVID. So just a couple thoughts. First, it was COVID. You have two sides. It's real. It's a hoax. No middle ground. No conversations. One side of the airwave is saying one thing, one, the other side is saying the exact opposite. No one's talking, no one's listening, we're just arguing. Every idea is contested. No matter what the science shows, we argue both sides, right? That's how it is. It's going to go away on its own, it's not going to go away on its own. Okay. Then we moved on to masks. Masks, do they work, do they not work? Scientists studying droplets and the size of droplets and understanding all that. It's like, it works, it doesn't work. Even scientists arguing over this and the size of this, it's like, it works, it doesn't work, okay? And then people say, I don't believe in masks, and so all of a sudden you've got people going to Costco, and I know this because they show up on YouTube, uh, you know, being argued down and fights, and I'm going to go in and it's my constitutional right to not wear a mask, okay? Yeah, it's also your constitutional right. You know, to be an idiot, you know what I mean? And that's what we do. We look at the other person and go, you're a moron. See, that's the idea. We no longer have compassion. We just argue and point fingers. And then you move on to racism. Attacks on Asians, because now this virus came from China. And so people are attacking Asians as a result of this, because we're, we're angry, right? No longer any conversation. No longer a necessary of any connection. It's just, it's a contestable idea. We just want to argue. We just want to fight. Uh, Ahmad Aubrey, Breonna Taylor, George Floyd, all of those people that were murdered, African-Americans. Okay, we look at that and we go, why? One side's go, how could that happen? And then the other side places the blame on the victim, right? And so we struggle with this. Black Lives Matter protests. Portland has been on fire for, I don't know, over a year and a half it seems like, Right. You go down there, it's boarded up. That age of outrage shows up no matter what side you're on. That's the important thing. Politics, you get to the election in the fall. You know, I mean, think about this. Was it a fair election? Was it a stolen election? How do you know? Can you know? They're still doing a recount in Maricopa County, right? I just was reading about it last night. How long is it going to take to figure this out? Laws are being rewritten, okay? Without a lot of care of facts. It's the emotions that are driving us. We just need to rush to something, right? Both sides. That's the reality. Is there any integrity? Then we move on to the insurrection. Okay, were those who stormed the Capitol on January 6th insurrectionists, or were they just on a peaceful visit to the Capitol? Because you will hear those exact words from either side. They were hugging police officers, or they were beating them to death. And if you don't believe me this, that this is an issue, were you not paying attention this last week when officers were testifying to Congress about it and then to follow up on the other side and to see the other side back and forth? It's unbelievable. Nobody wants to have a civil argument anymore. Nobody knows how to have a debate anymore. All we do is we point fingers and we attack. Then we move to vaccines. Oh, man. Vax, anti-vax, you know. You love people. You hate people depending on the side you're on, you know. And so you've got this wave of people saying, no vaccinations. Others saying, you need to be vaccinated. And some saying, well, you can't pressure me. Now you're shaming me for not doing it. And if I have to have a card and this and that. And it's just like, what world do we live in where we can no longer get along? We live in a modern age. And it just took something like COVID-19 to bring it all to the surface. It's been there for a long time. The age of outrage has been on talk radio for decades And on both sides of the political spectrum on cable news. And now it's embedded in everybody's heart. I mean, if if you watch that kind of a pseudo documentary, that story, uh, Social Dilemma on Netflix, you saw it being played out. But what, what gripped me the most was the people who are deeply embedded into social media and all the outworkings of all of the Facebook and everything. They are looking at it and saying that this is taking each of us down our own rabbit hole to the point of no return to where we will not be shocked that in the next 10 or 20 or maybe 30 years we will have a civil war in the United States. And it won't be about a moral issue. It will be an outrage issue. Now, if you don't believe that a formerly peaceful nation could break out with guns or knives and kill people next to them and destroy families, destroy friendships, people on one side of church or the other, on one side of the neighborhood or the other, on one side of politics or the other, can't do this, then you need to read some history. Because in 1994, for 100 days, a million people were killed in Rwanda because of a genocide. And having gone over there many times over and over again and studying and reading and finding this out, talking to the offenders, those that actually wielded the machetes and killed people, talking as they came out of prison, as Christ came into their life, and talking about how this darkness, this satanic darkness settled over them. And they did this, they're they're guilty, they claim to be guilty, but they said it it was like I was in a haze because the mob went that way. And talking to the victims... Who, who now are seeing Christ redeem their lives and bringing people together. I'm telling you it's possible because we live in an age when no one can know a certain anything. And all we want to do is argue back and forth and it's divided. I mean, yeah, it's divided families. You can go online, just search this. How has COVID divided families or how has politics divided families? People who will no longer speak to one another. They've written off people as dead because of politics. Because of an ideology? Because of masks or no masks? Absolutely. Churches have been divided. One of the deepest sadnesses that's come over me, you know, in my life, and I was talking to pastors about it in Portland last year in the middle of all this, is that we have believers in Christ pointing fingers and arguing and saying everybody's an idiot because they don't believe what they— it has nothing to do with Jesus. It has everything to do with what else they would want to follow. And this this the reality that we are no longer aliens and strangers living in a world following Jesus. We have picked up the ideologies of our world, and we're carrying the cross with that. And so the challenge is, what do we do with all that when we've divided so much? We live in an age where, according to Taylor, everything is contested, and everything is contestable. And then, if we dare take the gospel message into the world, it's contested, it's contestable. So do we have any way to show the truth of it? Do we have any way to reveal the reality of the gospel when maybe everything we say is going to be argued? Well, you know, Jesus actually explained that. He told us how to do that, that we would be his hands and feet, that we would be his body. Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, gathered his disciples in an upper room. And as he's explaining that he's going to be going away, before that he says, A new command I give you. Now, it's not new as in like they never knew it. It's new as in fresh. It's real. It's alive. This is vibrant in your life. Love one another. Now notice the directions. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. That you as followers of Jesus, now we would call people Christians, followers of Jesus, disciples now, 2,000 years later. We who are followers of Jesus, we who go to church, church people, we are to love one another as Jesus loved us. How did he love us? He laid down his life for us, right? Okay, we are to have that kind of love that we lay down our life. For our brothers and sisters in Christ. Yeah, that, that that the Bible says absolutely. And check this out. By this all men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Not only will that change you, <laughs> that will change the people outside these walls. Because they're gonna notice it and they're gonna start peering in. They're gonna go, What's up with those people? They get along. They have political differences, but they don't fight. They have ideological differences, but they get along. They have these opinions, but it doesn't matter because there is an incredibly intense love that permeates these people and flows out of these people. I want to know more about that. That is exactly what Jesus said would happen. But it didn't happen in the last year and a half. We failed because we chose politics over the gospel which was ideology over the gospel. Now, I'm not pointing fingers at sunrise. I'm just talking about evangelicals. I mean, just do a search on evangelicals in America right now. We're in serious trouble because we've laid the cross. We've, we've lost the cross somewhere, and we've picked up something else as our identifier. Now, when I was a kid, and, uh, and this, there was a song that... Um, Early on in my faith, I heard, and it was on the airwaves, and and it was uh, interesting. It was written by a Catholic uh, priest or friar. I I don't remember exactly, but 1960, and it epitomized this idea of love, and I I know most of you know it, and I know I can put the lyrics on the screen, and thank you. I'm not going to sing it, but this is what it said. We are one in the Spirit. We are one in the Lord. And we pray that all unity will one day be restored. This was written in 1960. This is before Vietnam, okay? This is before the summer of love, okay? All right? We will walk with each other. We'll walk hand in hand. And together we'll spread the news that God is in our land. We will work with each other. We'll work side by side. And we'll guard each man's dignity and save each man's pride. Why? They will know we are Christians by our love. By our love. And they'll know we are Christians by our love. Which really was just taking this verse and putting it into verse, right? Putting it into song and saying, if we could be this, the world would see something. And so I scratch my head and go, I don't like what it sees right now. I don't like what it sees because it's no longer about Jesus. It's about something else. And the only hope for us as followers of Christ in America today, in the West, is if we have a true resurgence of Jesus in our hearts, of the gospel in our churches, and we go and live that out, no matter how we vote, no matter what our leanings are, left or right, no matter we, whether we got jabbed or not in a shot, and whether we wear masks or not, whatever it is, whatever our opinions, those are all, Subject to Christ and the gospel. Now, when I think about this, I think about the best passage that I've ever known in the Bible. You know, in the time of Christ, the question on the mouths of everybody was, what does the law require of me? In fact, Jesus was asked that, hey, could you sum up the law? And he said, love God, love others. That's this right here, right? Love, love God with your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbors yourself. That's the, if you want to get the essence of the law of God, but then Jesus turned it around and let's no longer ask the question, what does the law require of us? What does love require of us? What would it look like to be love, to be Christ's love in this church, in our families, in our businesses, in our schools, in our neighborhoods, in the world today? What would it look like to be the embodiment of love so that, once again, as they used to say about the early church, oh, how they love one another. That's different than how we love and how we live. Let's go check that out. Well, um, there is a law in uh, seminary that says you have to preach this passage at weddings. And um, you have to sign a document in blood or your firstborn is taken or something like that. I remember it, it's like, it's always in weddings, right? And you're like, are we doing a, a marriage ceremony? No, it's like, I have a heart attack, right? I want to talk about First Corinthians 13 because it wasn't written for weddings. Now, I, I will be doing a wedding in about a month and I'll be using this, okay? So, because it's awesome for weddings. It really is. But the Apostle Paul didn't write it for people getting married. He wrote it for a church that was struggling with all the things I've mentioned. Oh, it was two thousand years ago, so they were different issues, but they were the same issues. There were divisions. There were politics. There were positions. There were parties, right? There were people, and so people said, "I'm of this guy. I'm of that guy. I follow this person. I like this person." Say, like, "Hey, have you checked out my gift? It's so much better than yours. You're such a loser compared to me," you know. <laughs> And, and and hey, you know what? I need to sit in a better spot so I can get to the Lord's table better so I can eat more. And I don't care what you get because I've gotten my own. You know what? My view of sexuality, my view of, you know, these things reign supreme. And you go through and you look at the book of 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians. This church was a mess. It was like American Christianity right there, you yeah? know? And into this, as Paul is writing and talking about all these issues... In chapter 13, he says, let me just clarify what love is. And he walks through and explains love. Now, um, he talks about all of it. And I, unfortunately, I don't have a ton of time, but I want to walk through these quickly and highlight some things because I think there's some important things to learn here and then bring it back to the question, what does love require? And so, first of all, it says here, love is patient. Uh, You know what patient is. Thanks for being patient to get to the, through the introduction, to get to the sermon here. Um, But the idea is to not retaliate when you're wronged. You're like, that doesn't sound like patience at all. But that's the idea behind the word, is to be patient, is to not, you know, it's the opposite of being short-tempered. Other translations say long-suffering or slow to to anger. But the idea is is used of people, not of circumstances, okay? You've been on the road and you're impatient, you know, with the car ahead of you, it's really the person. But but the idea is, we're talking about people, being patient with people, being able to be long-suffering or having a long fuse, especially when you're wronged. That's the emphasis on this, to not retaliate. Love's patience is the ability to be inconvenienced, and to even be taken advantage of by a person repeatedly and not get upset or angry. And I'm not talking about being abused, okay? That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the normal course of life when people disappoint us and we struggle with people. and They don't match our expectations. Patient love does not lose its temper when aggravated. Now, in the Greek culture that Paul wrote, patience was not a virtue. Patience was a weakness. In fact, vengeance was the virtue, and if you wanted to keep your status in culture and society, you destroyed the person when they wronged you. That was the only way to stay in. But if you humbled yourself and were patient, you were laughed at. You were mocked because no virtuous person does that. That's why Christ bringing this Judeo Christian ethic into the world is absolutely countercultural, even today, that if you live this out, that love is patient. God's love is patient. Its primary concern is for the welfare of others, not its own, right? One of Abraham Lincoln's earliest political enemies was a man named Edwin Stanton. He called Lincoln a cunning clown and an original gorilla. He said this, it is ridiculous for people to go to Africa to see a gorilla when they could find one easily in Springfield, Illinois. Wow. How did Lincoln retort? (laughs) Not at all. How did he respond? Not at all. Lincoln never responded to the slander, but when he as president needed a secretary of war, he chose Stanton. In fact, his friends were incredulous, and they asked Lincoln why, and Lincoln replied, because he's the best man. Now, years later after Lincoln was shot and killed and his body was laid in state, Stanton visited his body and through tears said, there lies the greatest ruler of men the world has ever seen. See, Lincoln's patience... That was in the face of accusations and slander. One standing over. That is love. Next, love is kind. Love is kind. It, kindness takes the initiative. It's, it's approaching someone generously with the person's need. It's considerate. It's helpful. It's what's considering the other person is more important than yourself. It's gentle. It's mild. Ready to show this compassion. It's, it's, it's active goodwill. Now, in, in the book of Romans, we see Paul say this that it's God's anger that leads us to repentance, right? No, no, no. It's God's kindness that leads us to repentance. You know what brought you to Christ? Was well, not God's wrath. Now maybe there was a righteous fear of that. That's good, but it was His kind approach toward you that won you to himself. In Titus, he says this, God's kindness showed up in Jesus that led to our salvation. And Peter writes this, we have tasted of the kindness of God. See, love is kind. It's not selfish. It's not spiteful. But it's kind. Then love does not envy. We know what that is, right? Envy is when we're wanting what other people have. All right? It's the jealousy of another person. When you envy, you want what they have. The Corinthian church, it was so bad, um, You know, they struggle with this, and I'm so glad as Americans in the West we don't anymore, but they wanted to keep up with the Joneses. and and it's so good we don't do that anymore? They wanted to own what other people owned. And here's the cool thing about this is that it wasn't just enough that you have something and I want it. If you have it, I have to destroy you, and then I get it. Isn't that awesome? That's the Greek culture. The Greek culture would have glorified that. That you have something, I'm jealous of you, I go take it and destroy you in the process. So not only do I have what I want, you are decimated. That's Greek culture. And into this Paul says love does not envy. Love does not envy. You remember Solomon's um, the only example of the wisdom we have of Solomon is this little little picture, little snapshot here um, where these two women come and explain the situation and And it's tragedy, you know, a baby died and anyway, what do we do? It's my baby, no, it's my baby. And so Solomon says, I'll tell you what, why don't we just cut the baby in half and you each get a half and you can go home happy, right? To which the first lady said, yes, that is what we're talking about. That's not love. It's not just that I want it, I just don't want her to have it. And the mom, of course, said, no, don't do that. She can have the baby, it's hers, which Solomon you know, deduce that it's her kid. Love does not boast. It is not proud. Paul writes to people who went around proclaiming they had the greatest gifts. They had the greatest preacher. That they walked around and said, uh, that's fine what you have, but have you seen me? I'm so much better than you. You know, that's, that was like church life. Walk around, parading around, showing off in church, standing up and having the best prophetic message. Making sure that everybody looked at you and said, man, I want to be like you. I want to sit next to you. I want to be a part of your group. You've got the best thing. Paul walked into that and he said, that's not what love does. It doesn't boast. It doesn't talk conceitedly is how the Greek puts it. It doesn't parade its accomplishments. Uh, C.S. Lewis writes, it's the utmost evil because it's the epitome of pride, which is the root of all sins, which is what Satan fell into. The boasting puts ourselves first. Love is not rude. And it literally talks about manners here, okay? And I know some of us don't have a lot of understanding of that, and we sit at a table with a bunch of forks and knives and everything, we don't know what to do. How many glasses does it take to have a meal? I don't really know. How many napkins do we need? Okay, but the idea is this, is that when we're rude, we're impolite, we're disrespectful, and we have a crudity to our life, a gutter talk and attitude to our life. The idea here is that we really want to care. And we want to learn how to respect other people who have different values and different cultures than we have. Corinthians were models of rude behavior. Man, they were selfish at the Lord's table. You read about it. They rushed the table. They took over the table. They ate till they were so fat and happy and they left other people aside. They were loud during the worship service. They tried to outdo each other. And if we're like that, and I think there's some of that in our evangelical culture today, we've lost the gospel. love is not self-seeking. Obviously, that means you want your way, and it's your way or the highway, right? I'm the only opinion. I'm the one that believes this way. That's how it is. It's the complete opposite of love because godly love focuses on others and their needs and puts your needs aside, lays yourself down. Doesn't that sound like, Jesus, I have come not to be served, but to serve and give my life as a ransom for many. Love is not easily angered. The idea behind this is you're not touchy. Or you're not irritable. Do people walk like they're walking on eggshells around you? Then you are an easily angered person. You have a short fuse. You're sensitive to slights is what it is. You're overly sensitive. That's the idea here. Paul says that's not love. Such people let things get on their nerves. But love guards against being irritated and upset and angered. We live in an age of outrage. And I'm telling you, you can make a lot of money on it. Just n- n- take a look at how much money has been raised by politics because of the election in the last year, since the election's over. Okay? All right, it's unbelievable. Now, uh, I was not saved in the mid-70s when we joined the church that was a part of what they call the moral majority. And the, I founded it and Jerry Falwell and Thomas Road Baptist Church. And we're going to take America back and all this stuff. And so I wasn't saved, but I was a part of that. And I remember witnessing, uh, sharing the gospel in the streets of San Francisco. I didn't even know the gospel. I was just sharing a track. And, and um, I was mouthing the words. I didn't know any of that, you know. But, but I was doing it. But then years later, as I've studied the moral majority and I've studied Thomas wrote, and I've studied Jerry Falwell, and I have respect for him as a preacher. There was an interview I read where somebody later, before he died, asked, how did he do that? Because it was unbelievable how quickly he polarized America and how rapidly he gathered all these conservative Christians together under the agenda, and the direction. And in the article, he said, it's easy. You can raise money and you can get a crowd if you're just mad at something. And I just got mad at evil. Now, I think it's good to be mad at evil. But the crassness of the answer was that all it takes is to be outraged. You want to form something and get a lot of people to follow you? Just stand up and be angry at something. Where's the gospel in that as followers of Christ? Keeps no record of wrongs. Now, the the word is a bookkeeping term that means to calculate. So think about it. You've got a ledger. This is back before QuickBooks, okay? And you've got a ledger. You open the book, the page, and you write a number in the field and you explain it, you know. And then that number has to be written down, a permanent record to be consulted. Why? Because it helps you understand the sum at the bottom. And you got to make sure all those are correct so you put those into memory. And Paul says, that's not love. When you keep a record of wrongs, when you write it down, I mean, literally or in your heart, and you come back to it over and over again, that, my friends, is not love. Keeping track of things is a sure way to destroy every friendship, every marriage, every relationship, and it will make you miserable. It will lead to bitterness. Love makes allowances for people's failures and faults, flaws. It causes you to forget the past. That's what it's saying here. Now, again, I'm not saying that if a person's hurt you, You need to keep engaging in that relationship. I'm not saying that. That's abusive. But when you can walk away and forgive and truly forget, that was part of the journey of me forgiving my father for his sins against me is constantly forgiving. Otherwise, I would have become an angry, bitter person, and I would have ended up just like him. And I didn't want to be that person. That scared me. And not only that, I'm thankful God didn't keep a record of my wrongs, right? What does the Bible say? If he kept a record of our wrongs, we're all toast. That's the Gleason's translation right there, okay? It's like he casts them as far as the east as the west, and he remembers them no more, unless he gets angry at you, right? Then he pulls them out and reads them off to you. Do you remember 1978? No, he doesn't do that. God keeps no record of wrongs. His love flows over that. Does not delight in evil, but rejoices in the truth. That's, that's pretty obvious. doesn't take pleasure in... Uh, the worst part of the world, the worst part of life, the evil that people do, it doesn't justify it. It doesn't enjoy it. Paul then gives these four rapid fire. If you notice, he started positive, then he went negative. Now he goes four positive, just rapid fire. And it's kind of cool because he uses the same Greek word to kind of fan out to all these quickly. He says, it always protects. This is a fascinating word, protect, because it literally means to cover or hide by covering. You're like, Whoa, wait a minute, wait a minute. Okay, hear me out before you send me the email. Okay, I'm not not saying to hide someone's sin so they don't get caught. I'm saying to hide someone's sin because they don't get caught. Okay, did you get the difference? No. Okay, let me read this to you. Okay, this is not about allowing someone to keep sinning. This is about loving them so much that you don't need to parade their sin around to other people. This is about loving someone so much you come alongside them when they're in the gutter and saying, you know what, let's not focus on that. In fact, I'm going to protect you from that. Let's focus on you and your heart. Because God wants to save you out of this gutter of sin and rescue you out of this brokenness. Again, God did not parade our sin around against us. He forgets it. He covered our sin with the blood of Christ. Now, what was challenging for us is that we like to bring that up. Because by shaming someone else, we feel better about ourselves as human beings. But think about this, when our love is true and our love tries to correct, we try to have the least amount of hurt and the least amount of shame as possible for someone who's guilty. Love never protects sin in that sense, but it's anxious to protect the sinful person. You know, our sinful nature just does the opposite. We want to point out all the problems of other people, and that's not love. Love always trusts never loses faith, is literally how I would say. It's always thinking of the good of others. It doesn't mean we're gullible, right? Love always trusts. Well, there's a sucker born every minute. Thank you, P.T. Barnum. It doesn't mean that. It means that when we see people, we give them the benefit of the doubt. Love is not suspicious. Love is not cynical. We trust. Love always hopes. Hope is the most important aspect of love. And it's why I'm finishing this series on Contagious Hope with this passage, because love always hopes and if there's going to be any change in our culture it's going to be because because of Christ and it's going to have to start in our hearts here the reality is this is I love Sunrise Church because we always hope Um, this is Sunrise this is so cool In the last service we had a guy who was homeless had some mental challenges who'd been in jail we greeted him and we're saying hi and everything and he came in and it's always kind of a Wild card. How about that? You know, And we don't like people feeling uncomfortable or whatever. And he ended up sitting over here. And, and uh, we, got, we got some great men who were kind of just watching everything. And he started talking. I thought he was on the phone. He was talking to himself. And, and my heart breaks with mental issues. I don't know what to do. And, and so I'm kind of preaching. I'm, I'm literally at this point in the sermon. And he starts talking like he's on the phone. I'm not going to draw attention to him. And the guys come up. And you know what? You know what they do? They take him out in a loving way. And Jeff... Jeff takes him over and buys him lunch, and he sits and hears about an hour of his story. The guy was hungry, he was alone, and Jeff loved him. See, that's hope. Not that he's going to solve all his problems, but that we're just going to love in that moment. See, we're a church that serves the least, the last, and the lost, and if you don't have hope, you can't do that. We have hope. I have hope. I have hope. That God can do amazing things in all of us. let me wrap this up. It always perseveres. This is a military term used of an army holding a vital position at all costs you know you 've seen those movies um, you know where if, if you if this hill falls, we die we 're all gone right it 's that idea love always perseveres we don 't give up when life gets difficult, and then finally, love never fails paul 's concluding statement about love, wrapping it all up is that we never give up hope but it 's fascinating because the word he used wasn 't just about falling or struggling, it was a specific word that, that we best explain, we don't use in our culture, a final falling. It was used of like a leaf that fell down on the ground or like a petal that fell down on the ground. It can't be attached anymore, right? It's, it can't be attached anymore. It's a final falling. Love never has a final falling. You never give up on people. Now, how do we love one another? I want to go to this. The reality is you and I know this this is this is challenging to talk about because in all relationships people fail us right there's always going to be a gap. We've talked about this before between what we expect and what we experience from people. There's going to be a gap and the closer the person is, the, the easier it is for them to fail and create a gap. The more you respect the person, the, the higher they up on a pedestal or whatever you might think, the easier it is for them to fall. There will be a gap between what you expect and what you experience from someone. You know this is true. It shows up in your relationships if you're married. It shows up in your marriage. If you're dating, it shows up in your dating life and your friendships. It shows up at church. It shows up at school. It shows up at work, just go to Fred Meyer and shop for 15 minutes. It'll show up. Somebody will fail you, right? Because you have expectations of how it should be, and people don't match up to that. Now, praise the Lord, he doesn't judge us for that, because we'd be done too, right? We fail as well. The question is, what do we put in the gap? Will we assume goodwill, or will we assume ill will? We have this mantra at our house, assume goodwill, assume goodwill. You get up in the morning, and somebody drank all the milk the night before, you're like, they knew that. They knew I wanted to get up. Five minutes before they got they got up before me and they used all the milk. They meant evil for me. They didn't want me to enjoy that incredible sugary cereal. They had it out for me. They probably planned this the night before. See, that's assuming ill will. Assume goodwill. Maybe they just didn't consider you. Maybe they just didn't think. Maybe they just in the course of life forgot. Do you assume goodwill and do you fill the gap with that love? Because that's, that's what Paul said. We fill it with love. Or do you assume ill will? And if so, that tells more about you than the other person. That reveals more about your heart than about the other person. I can't think but help, help but think about Jesus as I consider all these aspects of love. He was the perfect example. And, and he filled the gap with love. When we should have been thrown away and discarded, When we should have been eternally separated from God and punishment because of our sins, the Bible says, he came and filled the gap with love. And even when we sent him to a cross, when his disciples failed him and ran, he filled the gap with love. And he assumes now in this context, goodwill for you and for me. And he wants us to see how we can live that out in a community. So the question is, going back to not what does the law require of me? What does love require of me? What does love require of me? I'm going to invite the worship team to come up. And, and, and as they get ready, I just want to just dwell on this for a moment. And then we're going to go into the Lord's table. What does love require of you today? Has God brought anyone to mind when I've gone through this list of things? Probably someone that failed, right? Right. In one or all of them? Maybe you got a scorecard. Man, they're like batting a 1,000 on all these. They're big time screw up, right? What does love require of you? As you think about a testimony of Jesus out in the world today, what does love require of you? As you think about your social media posts, your emails, your texts, your conversation with your neighbors or at the gym or wherever you go these days, what does love require of you? Because God's love required him to come down and give his life for us. Because of our sin couldn't be paid for on our own. It took Jesus giving everything for you and for me. That's what love required.